Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Welcome back to Science Radio. My name is Jesse, and today I am honoured, I am overjoyed to be joined by our editor-in-chief, our fearless leader, the man in the high tower himself, Mr. Jared Stackelroth. Jared, welcome to the podcast once again. Thanks, Jesse, for having me. I don't know where to go after that introduction. Oh, hi, <laughs> just, just so many places to go. I'm excited because today we are talking about an article that you wrote in June, this month's edition of Signs of the Times magazine. If you've picked up a magazine, by the time this has released, you may have already read it. And if so, I'm sure you'll be just as excited as us to talk more to Jared about where this idea came from. The article is called The Tower Dedicated to Pride. If you have read it, then you'll know where exactly where we're going. But Jared, for those of our readers who perhaps haven't gotten to the article yet, Do you want to tell us a little bit about where the idea for this came from? Uh, Why were you so interested to talk about this topic? Yeah, thanks, Jesse. I I don't really know, as in I don't remember exactly where I came across this article, but as as an editor and as a magazine uh, writer, I often am trawling through different news sites and reading stories about things. And I came across the story of the Tower of Jeddah. Now, Jeddah is a city in Saudi Arabia. It's a port and it's the entry to places like Mecca, which is one of the Islamic religion's most holy cities. So, a lot of people travel through Jeddah to to get there. And when we think of big developments, I guess, in the Middle East, we often think of Dubai and places like that, some of the stadiums that are getting built in Qatar for the upcoming World Cup. But In Jeddah, they were attempting to build the highest tower in the world. And something about it just captivated me, The the this idea of attempting to build this tower that's going to be a kilometre high. That was the plan. One kilometre into the air. I find that hard to even just sort of fathom a building that tall. And so, part of it captivated me for that reason. But the other part was... The parallels, I guess you could say, between this Bible story that I've been hearing since I was a young boy about the Tower of Babel. It was another tower that was supposed to reach heaven. It was supposed to be the tallest tower in the world and and give the the civilization access to the heavens to, to become like gods in some way. And so, they were trying to build this tower. And just the similarities struck me between the Tower of Jeddah in our modern you know, current Middle East and the sort of ancient Tower of Babel and the story in the Bible that that unpacks that. I think the comparison to the Tower of Babel is quite apt for one of the major reasons being the fact that the Jeddah Tower remains unfinished, as a, at least as of the recording of this of this podcast. It was an ambitious project that I believe you say started in 2013, but it's uh, what seven, eight, nine years later, and the and the tower remains unfinished. Uh, why why has it been so fraught with with trouble? Do you think? Well, um, even Al Jazeera has reported that Saudi nationals have long compl- 
complained of rampant corruption in the government and public funds being squandered or misused by those in power. So there's been some purges, Saudi Arabian purges, where even members of the royal family recently have been imprisoned. And some of those people were, I guess, drivers of this project. They wanted the project to happen. They were pushing the project and it's pretty hard to finish a project when you're arrested and and locked up. So that's part of <laughs> that's part of the the reason and look it has been taken on by other other people, other companies. The developer is currently Thornton Tomasetti and they they seem to believe that the tower will be finished. They expect that it'll cost 1.2 billion dollars. It'll be a luxury hotel, a whole shopping complex and a big multi-use, multi-purpose rooms down the bottom. But, yeah, there are a number of other issues that have have obviously complicated actually getting it done. It's only about a third of the way done, apparently. As of, you know, recording this podcast and, and writing the article, there didn't seem to be any movement on the horizon in terms of actually getting that project restarted. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the more recent photos of its its progression in its development, it's it's hard to imagine the pre-visualization image that they're putting forth as this is what it's going to look like. It, it just looks like kind of an unsightly, ugly kind of building jutting out of the, uh, the city skyline. But one of the interesting things that you talk about in your article, and you only briefly mention it, but I did want to dig into it a little bit is the idea of kind of the, the future of skyscrapers being a little bit uncertain. Maybe not just skyscrapers, but high-density city dwellings. This obviously has been impacted by COVID-19, but what, what's, what's the deal there? Look, this was fascinating to me too. When I was researching the article, I found a really good BBC report. And obviously, they've been referencing a book which is all about the future of skyscrapers. And there's apparently some architects and some architectural historians who are quite interested in in some of these ideas. And basically, yeah, high density urban living is becoming less popular because of COVID-19, but also as remote working becomes easier and that sort of thing. And yet apparently they declared the death of skyscrapers in after 9-11, September 11, the terrible event where those those skyscrapers in New York got knocked over. But since then, they've actually had some of the tallest skyscrapers in the world completed in in China. Um, A number of cities in China continue to build these big high-rise buildings, apartment blocks and and, and industrial sort of work towers. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. There's often these trends, you know, we heard that books would die because of television and radio and, and sort of books are still with us. They've just found a different iteration. So, I think these skyscrapers will continue to be among us and, and to be used and perhaps even to be built, but perhaps at less of a rate. There was a boom in the industry and that sort of seems to have slowed. And perhaps Jeddah is an example of that trend, part of this, this difficulty in getting these massive monstrous buildings built. There's two thoughts in my head. Number one seems to be the the push toward high-density housing, which many people are touting as 
Like, this is going to help solve climate change and, and things like that. The fact of, you know, let's, let's put a lot of people all together in high-density housing. You know, we live in Sydney. There are high-rises going up every other day. I mean, you live in one of them. Many people live in a, in a high-rise complex these days. Close uh, access to, to public transport, amenities, things like that makes sense in a big city. But then there's the other thing, which seems to be like the Jeddah Tower, like the Burj Khalifa, like so many of these big projects seem to be almost like ego projects, like for, for you know, rich billionaires or multinational corporations, things like that. So, I'm just wondering, like, we have two kind of worlds. On the one hand, we have this, let's try and minimize our carbon footprint. And on the other hand, let's maximize our carbon footprint and make this as luxurious and ostentatious and, and crazy as possible, almost like it's a competition of who can build the biggest tower, who can build the most crazy thing ever. Yeah, look, certainly around my my area, you know, we've had a number of not high rises in that scale, but certainly apartment blocks, you know, go up. And and every time a house gets knocked down, they try and build either townhouses or high-rise apartments on it, you know. I think COVID has changed people's minds. It Certainly for me, you know, the idea of a little piece of land where I can at least build some veg, grow some vegetables, you know, have some plants, to me that seems more sustainable you know, depending on we're seeing the economy looking like tanking, we're seeing it's harder to get cost of living, you know, simple fruits and veggies. We've certainly indulged to excess in all the things that we've done in the past few years. And so, you know, we're used to fruits and veggies all year round rather than eating seasonally. We're used to things because we've become so detached from, I guess, the circle of life, what grows in what season and, and that we've become used to convenience and, and living on top of each other. And I think COVID-19 has gotten people tired of living on top of each other. I think it's made more people want to be self-sustaining. It doesn't necessarily bode well for the idea of these mega cities and, you know, big high population density places, you know, it's become more and more attractive to find some land and get a, get out of the city and get away from <laughs> the craziness. And yet I always think, you know, there is a, there is a human tendency and the biblical authors were looking at this and wrestling with this, I, I think with their, their Tower of Babel story, there is a human tendency to civilizing or, or coming together in cities and, and societies and communities and building, you know, part of the lead up to the Tower of Babel story is about strong leaders, strong kings rising up and sort of gathering people to them. And part of that comes with the sort of intimation of exploitation and these rich sort of billionaires that you're talking about. Where have they made their money from? Well, it's not from giving handouts. It's not from helping, you know, people to have a leg up or, or necessarily helping the environment. It's, you could say it's possibly a bit exploitative, some of the practices that, you know, have enabled people to get so much excess that they can build one kilometer towers in the sky. And so I think that's something that as a society, we're going to have to continue to wrestle with that we can. We can aim to to do our best to leave 
you know, less of a carbon footprint to be sustainable and to be more communal and sharing of our, you know, goods and, and, and things that we grow and, and, and that sort of thing. We can give each other a leg up. But at the same time, there will always be a, a human tendency to, to strive to get ahead, to compete with everyone else, to gather as much wealth as I can. And in, in many instances, that will have to come through pushing down my fellow man. That, that's how it, it, it seems to happen in human nature. And I think that's a tendency that both the Bible rejects and we as, you know, conscious, conscientious citizens, myself as a Christian, I should be looking at things that are exploitative and that are systems that take advantage of, of the disadvantaged. And, and I should reject that. I should rebel against that. And I think in some ways that's the, the moral of the story, both from Jeddah and from the Tower of Babel perspective. It seems like God wasn't happy to see these people exploit each other and, and build this giant tower and try and take the place of God in, in, in themselves to reach heaven or to build a high place, you know, where they could reside and they could be kings among men. It seemed like that was part of the reason God said, no, you have to spread throughout the world. Because, yeah, for those that aren't as familiar with the story, basically this tower was attempting to be built by all of humanity and God at that time mixed up the languages and had the people spread throughout the world. So it seems to be this idea that there can come great development, great leaps in human technology and information when people are all together, all on top of each other through civilization, etc. But there is also something to be said for diversifying, spreading out and, and taking the simple life back, you know, nomadic sort of moving through and populating the world and places in the world that aren't as high density. So it seems to be that tendency in, in the story. And it's just interesting that these guys have come along and decided we're going to build the highest tower in the world. We want to have that that right, that that privilege of, of calling ourselves the, the greatest, the tallest, the highest, and that their project has fallen through. And I think it's that psyche that I want to dig into that I think is really, really interesting in this story. As you're speaking, it just reminded me of a, a TV show that I watched a few years ago called Altered Carbon, which is based on a, on a book, a sci-fi book. And th there's this picture in the opening episode of this detective who wakes up in this gritty, dark urban environment with people just living on top of each other. And he's transported via a cop car or whatever to literal mansion in the clouds sort of thing. He goes from this high-density urban environment where it's just dark and there's pollution to the upper echelons of society that have built these towers that literally float in the heavens sort of thing. They see the sun, they see the blue sky, whereas the the poor, the, the, the oppressed, they only get to live in the dirt and the grime and the rain and the sludge. And I think that's a perfect sort of picture of what this dynamic is like. In a psychological sense, though, as well, it's not just about wealth and wealth inequality, which obviously is a big part of it. There seems to be something about human beings wanting to exploit each other so that they can reach a higher 
plane of existence of using whatever wealth is available to us to, to reach that existence, whether it's Elon Musk trying to form a colony on Mars or, you know, Jeff Bezos going into orbit just because he can sort of thing. There seems to be this drive to reach heaven. Um, and that's ultimately what the story of, of, of Babel is is all about. And it's funny, when I was a kid, I just kind of thought, oh, wow, God really didn't like it because they stuck together and built a city. That's like, what's what's the big deal here? But then when you peel back the layers, there's something there's something more going on here. Babel throughout the Bible becomes this symbol of Babylon, the great city, you know, and Babylon is problematic to God and to his people because in the story literally of the exile and things, Babylon is enslaving and exploiting Israel, God's chosen people. But they are also come to represent any sort of power that disadvantages and oppresses people. So, you know, when John is writing in the New Testament, one of the last books of the Bible or the last book of the Bible in Revelation, it talks about Babylon a lot. But at that time, Babylon had sort of already fallen as an empire. But it's calling back to the Tower of Babel. It's calling back to what we know of Babylon throughout the biblical record. And he's probably having a sort of political swipe at the Roman Empire of the day by labelling Rome or any power that exploits and oppresses and and pushes people down as Babylon. And and so, it's, it's almost like... That's what God is taking issue to. This this Tower of Babel story is like an archetype for an oppressive, exploitative power right through the Bible. And, and, and the prophets, the biblical prophets, talk about how as followers of God, we should stick up for the disadvantaged. We should take in the widow and the orphan. In, in those days, they didn't have the same social security type networks. And so, people who were disadvantaged, they were really you know, close to death's door. They had no support from their family. They had no support from the government or from anyone else. And so, there was a real emphasis on looking after those people. And so, to me, it's like, well, human nature hasn't changed all that much. The world hasn't changed all that much. Instead of nations exploiting people, yeah, there probably are nations exploiting people. There probably are corrupt nations in the world. And yet, a lot of it is these multinational corporations as well that you mentioned, you know, that have a lot of money, a lot of power over people's lives, the people working for them, the people who use their products. And and there is some need for some of these corporations to keep people enslaved, as it were, to what they what their agenda is so that they can become more rich and more powerful and more oppressive. Yeah, that's such a that's such a well, I would say fascinating. It's, it's such a depressing but true. It, yeah, it is. It is true, and unfortunately, that's something that we have to deal with even today. Which is, I think, why the biblical stories such as this one they have echoes throughout all of human history. Because if John the Revelator can look at the Roman Empire and go, "Hey, this is a kind of Babylon," then you know. 
that proves that it has staying power. Perhaps some of these stories are more circular in nature, that human nature is that predictable that we always have to keep a watch out for these sorts of tendencies, lest we become Babylon ourselves. I did want to ask you as well, I could resist, it fascinates me, the ancient Greeks had this idea of hubris, and, and many of our listeners will understand sort of what this is all about, but if you aren't familiar with this idea, there's many examples in ancient Greek and well, just stories in the ancient world, whether it be, you know, Prometheus stealing fire from the gods to give it to humans and the gods punish him as a result of it, or whether it be, you know, the the ancients building the city of Atlantis, this great city, and apparently they they disrespected the gods, and so the gods decided to destroy the city as a result. We even have stories of hubris in, you know, our more modern myths, whether it be, you know, like the Titanic. Some people say that, you know, it was the sin that they declared it was an unsinkable ship that actually did it in, in the end. But do you think that this idea of hubris is something that features in this story? Is it a is it an inversion? Is it sort of like a a different take on it. What's your what's your take on the the hubris angle in the the Tower of Babel? Yeah, I mean, hubris is excessive pride or self confidence, and I think the Greeks talked about it in their tragedies because they saw it in in the psyche, the psychology of the people around them. We are all afflicted with the sin of self, I guess, and even in the biblical narrative, the idea of sin came from the idea of now when we talk about sin we're, we're thinking of like a rebellion or a a destruction that's the idea that it's become associated with but if you look at what happens to say introduce sin into the world in some ways it's a trying to set yourself up in the place of god that was what we talk about when we hear original sin or the fall the idea that you know adam and eve in the biblical narrative the first humans were actually tempted to set themselves up in the place of God. And if we go back before that, the war in heaven, the idea of Lucifer, one of the prime angels, the prophets talk about him trying to set his throne up as high as the most high. So, in other words, taking the place of God once again. And I think in some ways the Greeks had the idea of the divine punishing and it's like a competition with the divine. And so it's the divine pushing back and trying to humble and, and push down people who try and get too big for themselves. You know, tall poppy syndrome. If, if people are doing amazing feats, if people are doing great things, then they should be cut down to size. I don't think in, in my view of God, the God that I believe in, who respects free will and choice, who who actually designed humans to, to develop and to grow, to spread and to multiply and, and to cultivate the world that he gave them, to work in the world that he gave them. I don't think the idea of having pride in our achievements is a problematic thing. I don't think that's a sin. I think setting ourselves up in the place of God or Deciding that we don't actually need God or the divine or, or that, you know, the, the, the pride or the arrogance that we can know everything, we can do everything, we can achieve everything, and there's nothing that can be unknown or mysterious to us. I think that's the problem that we set ourselves up for the fall. I don't think God punishes as such as a, 
you know, lightning bolt from the heavens and just says, hey, you've got to be cut down to size. I, I think it's more a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways that as we try and strive to be like God, we actually fall short. And, and I think that, you know, my evidence for this is that God actually, through the biblical narrative, he reverses the curse of Babel in Pentecost, in Acts. He brings people together from all nations of the world, and they are all understanding the gospel message in their own language. And so, he's bringing people from multicultural, from all the nations, and in Revelation, we get this picture of the the tree of life and the, the leaves and the fruit of the tree of life for the healing of the nations. We get this picture of human city, a human city like Babel, but where people collaborate, cooperate, where their culture and stuff is to lift one another up. And so, I like the idea, coming back to what we were talking about, about the exploitation and, and oppression and stuff, I think, if anything, that's what God was having issue with. If he stepped in to, to, to stop that from happening, that's why, because people were being hurt, people were being exploited. And so, the biblical story arc calls people back to restoration. It calls God wants to see people in a place where they can live together in harmony, where they can, you know, no more crying, no more death. We hear about these things, you know, God's original plan for humans was to live and to have life and to to cultivate the ground and 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 to develop. And and I think that some of those concepts are really beautiful and and should be striven for, you know? No, that's that's really cool. And I think I think that's a good place to leave it off because I think there's more to unpack, but I'd love for people to go and read the article for themselves. But thank you for painting that picture for us, Jared. I especially love how it's not just that God doesn't want to just cut us down to size. He doesn't want to just bring us back or to humble us, but he actually wants us to be to experience rich, fulfilling life in him. And that's ultimately where he's bringing all of us as humanity. So, thank you for the article, sir. Thank you for for chatting with us. If you'd like to read the article, you can do in the June issue of Science of the Times magazine. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au.